Welcome to I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Careview. Every week, a guest and I will be discussing an album that we both fucking love. We're going to find out how the record or band entered our lives. We're going to do some track-by-track observations and, of course, any other thoughts that come our way. Warning, these are conversations held by adults, and sometimes bad words will appear unedited. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I know this is important for you. And I want this to be the best it can possibly be. I appreciate that, Chris. On the agenda today is American 3, Solitary Man, the third album in Johnny Cash's American series. It was released on October 17th, 2000 by American Recordings. It reached 88 on Billboard's Top 200 and number 11 on the country charts. Uh, Cash won the Grammy Award for Best Male Country Vocal Performance in 2001 for the title track. In the hot seat today is writer, comedian, and the best man at my wedding, Christian A. Dumay. Woohoo! Tell him about you, Chris. Uh, I'm a, a writer, an editor, and uh, I'm a proofreader living in Wrocław, Poland, uh, with you. And uh, I've written some books, and I guess probably my most famous book was Smashed, The Life and, the Life and Tweets of John Kalk, and, uh, which is available everywhere. And uh, yeah, and clearly I don't like talking about myself. Welcome to the show. And I would like to just point out that uh, we both do live in Wrocław. We do not, however, live together, as may have been implied well, in Christian's introduction. Is, is that something new? <laughs> Did you move out? <laughs> and never. We'll talk about this after <laughs> the show. All right. So one of the things we like to do in the show is we talk about how did this album enter my life? Uh, now, for me, Johnny Cash was... I guess always a, a background figure. I mean, I knew who he was, uh, but my my parents didn't listen to country music, uh, so I didn't know a lot about him. I didn't listen to country music, and but you know, some things are unavoidable. It's like even if you don't listen to Elvis, you probably know a couple of Elvis songs and, and the Beatles and a few others. So uh, some things are unavoidable. So I knew, let's say, Ring of Fire and Walk the Line, uh, but I had never listened to Johnny Cash on purpose before 1994. Uh, at this point, I was working in college radio, and I was the metal director. Glenn Danzig had written one of the songs on the first American Recordings album uh, called 13, I believe. And so American Recordings sent out this album to a bunch of metal directors, I don't know, just for the fun of it, maybe thinking there would be some kind of crossover play or uh, that maybe they would convince the other folks to play. So anyway, so I, I took it home to listen to it. I was intrigued, and it just it blew me away. I really enjoyed that first album. Uh, and then I, I probably went out and bought a, a, a Johnny Cash's greatest hits at some point. Uh, and then the second one came out, but I, I, I eventually got it and I love that one. And then that's when he started having all these various health problems. They didn't know exactly what it was. At one point they thought he had something known as shy Drager syndrome. And it was pretty much thought he wasn't going to live long enough to record another album. Uh, so when this third one did finally come out, it was I, I, I got this on the day it came out, I believe. And as obviously one of my favorites, why it's on this show. Um, what about you? How did this album or how did Johnny Cash come into your life, Chris? Uh, I came really late to the party with Johnny Cash. Um, like you, I was aware of him. And but for what ever reason, and I feel bad about this, is that I always kind of lumped him with kind of like the hee-haw of country, like that kind of pocket, mm -hmm. um, sure. and uh, which was a mistake. 
And uh, in growing up in Florida, I grew up in Hudson, Florida, which is not far from Port Ritchie, Florida. And uh, Johnny Cash had a, a house there. So he was geographically close at times. And I knew like where he would have breakfast. And he was kind of like a, people were locally, people were aware of him. But again, I didn't really care about him. But if there were obviously a different time and if I was older, it would have been very different. Um, uh, but I want to say 97, 98, there was a, a science fiction show called Space Above and Beyond, which was on Fox, and in one of their episodes, they, they used, uh, Walk the Line, um, a couple of times, and I immediately loved the song, and I went to this used record store near the university. And I picked up a best of, prob probably the same one as you, and uh, never, never looked back. I just kept, I mean, talk about, you know, we always talk about when you discover like an artist and like you get, you get to go through the back catalog, but with him, it's really overwhelming. And, yeah. And so there's a lot to digest and, and I, I still, even to this day, I'm still, still discovering uh, music by him. Oh yeah, definitely. And like you said, he's, he's a towering figure in music and he's one of those guys that, uh, people will say, well, I don't like country music, but of course, right. you know, that's, uh, he, he's in that. So is what him and Willie Nelson, maybe Hank Williams senior, there's a small handful and that, that kind of gets the pass. Uh, and you know, there's other artists that I have come into much later or who were, let's say before my time where like with Leonard Cohen, it was able, I was able to dive into Leonard Cohen because, while his discography is awesome, it's small. <laughs> uh, and at that point, I think I had, when I first um, knew who he was and wanted to know more, maybe seven albums to buy uh, at some point. And then Cash had something like 53 albums or something just uh, unreachable, you know. And you don't know what you're going to get when you're talking about an artist like this, because I'm sure he had his not so great periods, you know, you don't want to accidentally pick up something he put out for Mercury records in 1983 and think, Oh, he's terrible. Why does everybody talk about this yeah. guy? You know? Uh, so that is kind of fun going back. And for me, he, for, I, I love Johnny cash, but I love the stuff that he did really in this last part of his life. Uh, early stuff. I, I appreciate. And there's some of it I, I really love, but I, it never quite hooked me like the, the later era stuff? You know, I, I, I go back and forth. You know, I, I, I love the, the American recording and I love what he accomplished, <clears throat> accomplished there. Um, but his, old, his older work is, I don't know, it's just there's something really special about it. And you're right, that middle period, somewhere in the 70s and 80s, it, it gets kind of rough. Classic Johnny Cash is there for a reason it's uh, pretty amazing that is true so i know that early stuff when and that's when all the rules were being written for for rock and roll and uh when he was there is more of like a rockability rockabilly kind of it's you know he was recording at the same time at the same place in the, on the same days as elvis presley as carl perkins as jerry lee lewis you know roy orbison all these guys kind of came from the same the same place and went just slightly different directions with it so that early early period stuff is I mean, it's bulletproof, but it's still not exactly uh, what got me. So I think it's just that, you know, what got me into him is, is what I think ultimately has appealed to but me. But also, and you can't 
ignore that he's he's even an icon. I mean, it's just he's yeah. cash. It's just something yeah. just really amazing about him because on the surface he doesn't have a great voice. He's not, and he'll admit uh, he's not the greatest guitar player. First time that guitar's been played all night. <laughs> right. It's really amazing that that if you look at all the parts, it, it should not work. He should not work. And yet, I, through sheer will or timing or anything, it's just put all those parts together, it creates this icon that's larger than life. And mm-hmm. you really have a hard time with him. Like a lot of you know literary people I really love, where you have a hard time separating the myth of Johnny Cash with the reality. I think it's one of the reasons why he's just so wonderful, which adds a completely different dimension to his music. Even sometimes with his music, and the same thing on this album, is that you can't tell when, I know you shouldn't apply this rule to any singer, but you can't tell at times when he's being himself, when he's singing from his own heart, or when he's playing a character. You know, mm-hmm. or the idea of cash. And I think that's part of the fun with him. Yeah. And I think it's uh, Chris Gustafferson has a famous quote or a line about cash where he's like, uh, and I can't remember exactly right now. I'll have to look it up and edit it in later. But <laughs> something like uh, he's a half half mythology, half contradiction sure, or something sure. like that. Yeah. So we're going to be, uh, again, not just looking at cash, but focusing specifically on this particular record, which was the, uh, the third in the series that he produced with uh, Rick Rubin. The end of the trilogy. End of the trilogy, but before the, well, I think they en- ended up with six, I think wow. six official releases. Two of them which were released after after he died, uh, and that is also not to, in- uh, not including the uh, unearthed box set, right. which has some real, real gems in that. I enjoy that a lot. So one of the things I've been playing with here is talking about uh, the type of song that the artist opens the album with. And there's four different ones that I've come up with. Uh, so we have the the call to action. Okay. So this is where it's meant to announce the album's arrival or like it was written to be played at the opening of a concert okay. or say, you know, it's big, it's bombastic. Yeah. It's, you know, here sure. we are. Then we have the teaser, which doesn't really sound like the rest of the album. It's usually pretty short. It's maybe 30 seconds to a minute long. And it's sort of floats a curveball it's not what you're expecting and it's completely different from the rest of the album there's the setup which doesn't sound radically different from what the rest of the album will give you but it's all about setting up for song two which is there to punch you in the face hopefully finally the blueprint which gives you an overview of what to expect from the album the themes the sounds etc sometimes the blueprint is just song one but other times it's kind of a pumped up version of what you're going to hear so based on that i'm going to guess that we're dealing with the blueprint. That's your theory. Track one, side one, is I Won't Back Down, a Tom Petty song. Uh, and I put this one somewhere in between a call to action and a blueprint. Okay. I wasn't really sure because it, it is just a little bit more than you get on the rest of the album. You know, it was just that guitar intro. And a lot of people didn't think this album was going to come out, that, that Cash was not right. going to live long enough to record it. And to open up with I Won't Back Down felt like a statement. Sure. But it is a lot of what to expect because there are a ton of covers on this on this record. You can see that it's not the stark folk of American One, but it's also not the rock and roll of American Two. Right. You can really hear the effect that the previous few years had on his voice. His voice is not nearly as strong on some of these tracks as it was on the previous albums. So it's somewhere I can't quite tell if this is a call to action or if this is a blueprint. But the fact that you said blueprint. Yeah, I mean, it's just how I feel because it really sets the stage. I mean, this particular album, I think it's the best of an entire package. Certainly my favorite 
uh, of the American recording. I think it, mm-hmm. I think there's it's a solid album, and I think that it kind of makes a statement, like you said, and it, and it follows through all the way to the end. So, what are your thoughts about this song specifically? Is this a is this a favorite track? Not not a favorite. I mean. I, I love about this album in particular that there are the most amount of cover songs that I recognize compared mm-hmm. to other albums. I Won't Back Down is a great pick for him. You know, it's it's funny because I remember you and I talking a long time. You know, when he was alive, we were like, sitting there, Johnny Cash should do this. He should try this song. Go ahead. You know, because like, <laughs> you kind of understood his limitations of what he could or couldn't do. And like you hear a song like, oh, that's a Johnny Cash song. He should sing that. And like I think the one you and I said for years, we said he should always do is uh, you're on uh, you're on fire with Bruce Springsteen. I'm on, I'm fire. on fire. Excuse me, yeah. And we said that for years, and then he did it and won the, Amer- the later American recording. It was so exciting. So it's it's perfect. Tom Petty is great himself, and it's a, it's a good song. And the the meta quality of it in terms of where he was at this point in his life, as you mentioned. I think it's, uh, it's a great touch. Yeah, and I think thematically really does set up the album. He survived, but he's worse for the mm-hmm. wear. Mm-hmm. And, you can, and you can hear it. I think Johnny Cash has the voice of God, mm-hmm. but as a singer, he is limited. His range is, is very limited. But I find that a lot of my favorite singers are that way. I mean, I love Tom Waits. I love Greg Dooley. These are guys who don't have regular supple singing voices, right. you know. And then just to come out and Petty, who's got his own particular style and uh, sings back up on it and plays guitar on it, I believe. And it's just, I think it's a great, it's a great way to open uh, this particular album. Yeah, I agree. Slides us into the second track, uh, another cover. This is a Neil Diamond song, Solitary Man. What were your thoughts on Solitary Man? Well, this is the one I think that where your ears really pick up. Like, yeah. Oh, this is the track. When I first heard the album, like I just kept repeating it over and over again before I went to the next one. It's like, I just mm-hmm. immediately loved it. It was a great choice. And again, it's, he takes the song and he really kind of makes it his own. And because it's him, it, it literally redefines the meaning of the song in comparison to uh, Neil Diamond. Great track. This is a great surprise. And the thing is, I, I really, I like some old Neil Diamond. And I, the thing that I appreciate about this song is it really shows you the quality songwriter that Neil Diamond really was. Uh, and to be able to take it, and this is not the first time or the last time where just Cash singing the song transforms mm-hmm. it. And it makes it into a different song. So Neil Diamonds, which came out, I think, in the what mid to late 60s, was kind of a teenager's lament. Really feels like kids talking. It's like, oh, one day I'll find love. But then you have Cash bringing his voice of God to this mm-hmm. thing. It's like, oh, I don't know if he's going to find it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it's the title track. It's him, Johnny Cash. It's great. It's such a great choice. I, I would love to know like details behind the scene of how he comes to it. Like, is it him hearing the song, picking them, or are they being recommended to him? I'm just kind of curious how he approaches all this. As far as I know, it was a combination. Yeah. When Rick Rubin first approached Johnny Cash about recording albums with him, or obviously at that point, just the idea was one album. As far as I know, the story goes, Rick Rubin says to Cash, I want you to record every song you've ever wanted to record. And he goes, that's an awful lot of songs, Rick. And then that was it. And so then there was off to the races. So I think it was a combination of stuff that he knew and wanted to and other things that I'm sure Rick Rubin brought to him. And I believe Johnny Cash's son also recommended quite a few songs over the years. It's like anything in the music business. There's a, I'm sure there's a whole sausage quality going on, grinded together. I don't know. Now, this is obviously an old song and a song that I'm sure Johnny Cash 
new. I have a feeling this is one he wanted to do as opposed to this one being brought to him. Track three, we have that lucky old sun who just rolls around heaven all day. I don't have a lot of notes for this one. This is, I, I like this one, but not one that, let's say, makes a mixtape when I'm making a Johnny Cash uh, playlist. Well, initially, first listen, kind of a disappointment because one, I don't I don't know the song. Yeah, so you go two for two, like you know it. So I've always liked it, but it never really amazed me. However, I've been listening to this album on off all day in preparation for this. And for some reason, this one really stuck out for me today. Mm -hmm. It's sadder than I remembered it for some reason. Yeah. It goes back and forth between where this is person singing about regret or this person singing about like envy or anything. It's just very unusual. So I, I really love it because I'm much older than I was when I first listened to it. <laughs> Maybe there's something to that. This one, I'm totally on board with. Yeah, it's that whole nature doesn't give a shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can hear that too. Yeah, I think it's you reach that age and you re you realize that no matter what I do, things are just going to keep going. And even when I'm not here, they're going to keep wow. going. Uh, and it is a little bit sad. It is a little bit of a lament. But because Cash sometimes approaches these things a little bit tongue in cheek, mm -hmm. I think that's where you're kind of waiting. You're waiting for a joke, and he also as we'll see in the second half of this album, likes to write about nature. And so you kind of get that feel. And so it's like, oh, maybe not. And for some, I always associate this song with Ray Charles. Yeah. And he did do this song, yeah. which I wasn't sure at first. And he didn't do the most famous version of it. Apparently he didn't. I don't, I wonder if I've even heard it. <laughs> but for some reason, that's what just, I think this is Cash doing, uh, doing mm -hmm. Ray. Now this goes on to another big cover. And this is one uh, originally from U2. I am not a big fan of U2. I like a small handful of, of songs by them. And this was one of them. So U2's original one, I, I really, I love the song. After hearing this version, I like to joke that I love Cash even more because after hearing his version of one, that made U2 useless to me again. Mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't need U2 <laughs> in my life anymore because his version of one is so much better yeah. than their version of one. Yeah, uh, I don't even know if the band would disagree with me on that, as we've seen with others like Trent Reznor famously talking about Hurt, how Johnny Cash stole my girlfriend. I love this song. I love everything about this song. This song is bulletproof. I don't know. I have no nitpick of this song I can think of. This is a per almost a perfect song in terms of lyrics. I love the original, like yourself. Mm -hmm. But if I want to listen to this song... I'm going to listen to the Johnny Cash version. It's, uh, it's a gem. I was so excited when I saw that he covered this. And then when I got to it originally, and it's the second one where it's just repeat, repeat, repeat before I got to uh, track number five. Yeah. It's great. And he brings such gravitas to the song. Uh, you know, Bono did um, a cover of uh, Leonard Cowan. Hallelujah. Which is like the worst thing ever, but yeah. Not good. It just misses the point. Completely dismisses the gravitas that Cohen brings to Hallelujah. And here, it, it just felt like, even though it was their song, it just feels like Bono missed, missed the point of the first time around with his song, even though it's great, and I'm not trying to dismiss it. It's a great song. Johnny yeah. Cash just knocks this one out of the park. Bono, in general, just annoys me, and I don't care for his voice very Am I much. Am Bono? Is it Bono or Bono? It's Bono. I say Bono. It could be. It could be Bono. I can't but I Bono. <laughs> oh man. I'll leave, I'll leave both in, and one Leave of us, it. One of us is bound to be right. Uh, <laughs> oh God! But I'm, I'm such a grandpa. Bono. Are you, are you listening to them Bono and the U2s again? Those U2s. <laughs> I like an edge. An edge is good. 
but he, he just has this kind of lugubrious quality to his voice yeah. and he just kind of bends things and, and just that straightforward approach. There's a lot of talk about the song and what it could mean. And I think most people just think it's really about Bono and the relationship he has with his dad. But Cash finds finds a way to, I think, to make it just universal. Yeah, and also it's just that the quality of his voice at this time and particularly with this song is there are moments where it feel like his voice is about to break, like he's about to cry. Yeah. It just, it adds, uh, and I know it's not purposeful, but it just adds a completely different dimension. I'm going to keep saying that over and over again, because that's just the only way to approach Cash's revisions here of, of these covers. Beautiful song. Also, looking at Cash, you wonder, like, he could not have done that 10 years before like it's just like he had to sing it at this point to get it right yeah and the imperfections that he brought with it are the things that make it beautiful i would agree there was a there was a small handful of things that i wish he would have done earlier when he still had the stronger voice but this is not one of them i think this is perfect there's a couple other types in this album it's the same where like you said those imperfections are what help elevate the song so on the next album he covers um personal jesus from uh depeche mode and i really wish he would have done that one on the second album when he was still in full voice and i think that would have been fantastic i feel the same way about the bridge over troubled water yeah so there's a few things so that's why like four is it's a bit of a back and forth record for me which is why we're discussing three but (laughs) one of those things that he brings uh, to this particular song and throughout this particular album so track five uh, i don't know who wrote this one do you have that up i'm seeing burt williams burt williams okay not familiar with burt williams so probably an old country music singer songwriter but this one's called nobody and this is the one i think is most reminiscent of what you would have found on that first record it's a little bit more stark it's not quite as ornamental as as other songs on this album you can really hear the effects of the last few years on his voice in this song in particular this is probably his weakest vocal performance but i don't mean that in a bad like his his voice is literally physically weak as opposed to poorly done and it's funny this is i think where you kind of you almost associate this one with lucky old son it's like that same kind of tongue-in-cheek whereas this actually is Mm tongue-in-cheek and it is Mm -hmm. it is funny and his line readings of just the more desperate ways he says nobody Yeah, got to whittle on a stick one night. Yeah, uh, and it's funny. It's it's also a little bit sad, yes. and you could see how in different ways it could be even sadder. Cash keeps it afloat because I think if it's if you make the song a little bit sadder, it just becomes self pitying and maudlin. Right. And he finds just that right spark of humor to make this song worthwhile mm-hmm. to make it, to carry you through because right. it could this could be super cheap. It is, and it, it can be. And what's great though, is we're twenty years away from his album coming out and uh mm-hmm. we can still find it funny i mean and, and it yeah. still holds up i mean uh like again i listened to it today and i still chuckle at that dynamite line of interest clicked burt williams he was one of the most popular comedians for all audiences of his time yeah, oh wow a bahamian american entertainer from the vaude from wow. the vaudeville era worth discovering more about definitely so obviously i think the uh, point is i guess that really kind of comes through because yeah. very very funny yeah and then moving on to track six i see a darkness originally performed by i believe bonnie prince billy or was he still palace at this point i honestly the, don't know i can't remember i know it was written by will oldham and i can't remember what the name of his band i know it was off the album i see a darkness wow it just yeah wow this was the biggest surprise of the album i don't know the original never even heard of the original artist this song i mean it's rough it's beautiful it's 
much. I mean, it's incredibly complicated. Man, what a beautiful song. Who's the original artist? Uh, Bonnie Prince Billy. And I have this record, and it's a good record, but this is is not my favorite song on on the record. It's, It's good, but Cash finds the beauty i would have suggested like if i would have just listened to that album first and wanted cash to do a song i probably wouldn't have chosen this well one. first I, I i remind me later i should i want to give that album a listen because i heard the original later i don't remember it now and i remember just mm-hmm. not liking it because this is one of those examples where when you hear it the opposite way and you know and you love it the way cash does it then it, it doesn't matter what the original is this yeah. is one of those where it's from my memory this is far superior it adds new dimension to it yeah yeah this tells a story that's the great thing about cash in general is that he's a great storyteller with the songs and he chose some really good songs to tell a story and this one mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> man it's funny because i've been in my head trying to think what do i want to say about this all day and this one is just it hits you right in the heart it's such a heartbreaking song and it's just so perfect and great location on the album because you come right out of nobody and you're mm-hmm. in a different place mentally and it bleeds into this song that sinks so low i mean it's just oh god it's great such a great song yeah it's everything you want from a johnny cash song mm-hmm. it's just got this simple beautiful guitar and i don't i don't even know if he's playing the guitar in this one but it's just it's a it's such a great guitar melody uh, and, and I like the original. Mm-hmm. I do. Will Oldham, who sings backup on this particular song, would also, you would say, has kind of a, a stark, limited voice. But he's on the completely opposite register of Johnny Cash. So whereas Cash is on the low end, he's a little bit higher. So while the, the song is very stark and quite beautiful on the original, there's a warmth to this in the production. It's just, it's his ability to inhabit a song yeah. like it's an old coat. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one, if, if I was to see that Cash wrote this, I would not be surprised. I mean, well, that, have you ever noticed the kind of thoughts I've got? What a yeah. great line. The way he, he sings it, it's just great. And this is an all-timer for me. Like if you're talking about all-time favorite songs, not just on this record or not just about Cash, but this album, or this song is so... You love this song so much. We've had parties and you played, <laughs> you played this song yeah. in the middle of a party. No, yeah. that doesn't sound like something <laughs> I would do. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember doing that, but I... It doesn't surprise me, but and, and I really like how their voices blend. Yeah. So the original songwriter, original singer, is there, and there, and he sings the the backup, and their their voices just blend. And mm-hmm. there's just so much to love about this yeah, song. I, I wish I had something deeper to say. Oh, but, me too. And for me, this really sounds like Cash. It's he doesn't seem to be the right age for this song because it really feels like a man moving from his let's say wild youth into his more settled days, and he right. wants his friend to come with sure. him. That's kind of the story I get. Yeah. And and so you could almost see that this is the case of where I think the younger man should be able to tell the story a little bit better if you're right in that age, as opposed to the older man looking back. But still that gravitas you just, which is the word we're probably going to yeah. say a million more times on this podcast, brings that authority. And I don't feel like he's a man out of time. I don't feel like he's telling the wrong story or he's telling the wrong story at the wrong time. I still feel like this is him. But also, I always took the song as like somebody with mental illness or, or depression, just trying mm-hmm. to get his friend to understand that, what he what he's going through. And that's how, that's the, the, the heartbreak of the song. It's just that him passionately trying to tell 
someone what he feels, yeah. which is yeah. such an impossible task. He follows up that great, great song with yet another yeah. great, great song. So The Mercy Seat, originally done by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And I was a, a neophyte Nick Cave fan when I heard that Cash was going to cover something from him. I didn't know which song. And so I, I was only familiar with maybe one or two albums at this point, And I did not know The Mercy Seat. And had I only heard The Mercy Seat on its original uh, studio version, I don't think Cash would have chosen. That would have not been in my top 100 picks for Cash to do. It's noisy and it, it's crazy. Sure. And I think this version, Cash's version, comes more from the live version that's on Live Seeds because he, because Cave really just minimizes the noise. It's no longer this kind of post-punk craziness and it's more of what, what you hear from Cash. But man, is this song fucking great. I remember buying this album probably the day that it came out, bringing it to work and listening to it at work the next day. And about halfway through the song, I realized I had not been breathing. I was just holding my breath and listening. And as this story, this is the story song for yeah. me. And it just, you go through the progressions and the repetitions with the slight changes. And it's, uh, this song's amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, this is one of those songs you understand completely why he covered it. Yeah. It was always a Johnny Cash song. And the cave never knew that. That it was always his, the perfect Johnny Cash. And this fits right into that whole Folsom Prison kind of catalog. It's just, it's great. And it's just another, I never really thought about it, but he's done a lot of kind of first person prisoner stories, mm -hmm. you know, and this is just another guy on, on, in the same prison. This is his story. And I love how unreliable he is and how he totally gives it away at the end. It's just a great song. Yeah. Yeah. The unreliable narrator and just the, the ramping up of the, of the violence of the execution itself. Right. And there's just so many great lines in the song that when he disembodies himself, when he was like those filthy five did nothing to challenge or resist, uh, you know, when he's talking about his own yeah. hands that killed the person or whatever, but he's still saying he didn't do it. And it's just, man, it's so good. And I know, and Nick Cave will actually appear, I think on the next album or the album after that and does a duet with Cash. So I, I know that Cash is one of his touchstones and I'm, I know that he covered uh, Long Black Veil. Yeah. Again, I don't remember if Cash wrote, but Cash is the one who made that made that song famous and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds would cover that. But I, I did make a mistake though that I always said there was always Johnny Cash's song but I will say that it's important to highlight particularly Cave's uh, contribution to the song it being his obviously but it's just that there is a psychological depth involved with this with this character that you don't necessarily see in most of the of Cash's it's very, you know, with, with Johnny Cash's character, they tend to be very kind of black and white, and it's like right or wrong, where they're just bad people. And with this song, it's just, there's, there's, a, there's a weird humanity to it, you know, in the sense that the more unreliable this guy is, and the, and the more he's confessing while discounting what he did, this guy becomes more real than any character Johnny Cash has ever portrayed previously. Yeah, uh, I hadn't really thought much about that because, you know, you have, let's say, Cocaine Blues mm -hmm. and it's, all right, I did it to cocaine and I shot my <laughs> yeah, woman. Yeah, you know? yeah, or <laughs> I shot a man just to watch him die. I mean, it's not... Yeah. <laughs> 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 or did, but you didn't say like maybe at the end you know just, <laughs> or did i <laughs> yeah so they tended to be like you said very black and white and i think this is uh you know while this guy clearly did what he's been accused yeah. of doing 
but just just the horror mm -hmm. of the way he sings about being in the electric chair it goes from like my, my head is glowing to my head is melting and it's it's brutal yeah. it's tough and it's great and just really a, a highlight of not just this album but i think of cash's career yeah. also next time we ever do anything like this we need to get a thesaurus so we can stop using the word great so much because <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you and i are terrible about that it, uh, is, a great uh, it is yeah i fucking love it that's why we're here all right so now we're gonna flip the album over track eight uh and i believe this is a cash original uh would you lay with me in a field of stone uh and i kind of thought of this as the first of the field songs the beginning of side two we see say four out of five are, are songs that are let's say fieldy naturey kind of thing so yeah, i never noticed that yeah i don't know the story behind the song but it feels like one of those that johnny cash would have written with june for june but he didn't even write this song so this was written by will allen co i david believe allen co, yeah. david allen co sorry there's those um, mother nature's quite a lady right if, if in that same vein yeah, yeah. and that's clearly why he chose this particular song i think again so like we talk about him being able to just take a song and make it his own even though he didn't write this song this i can see cash in a field with his wife he says hand me a piece of paper and he scribbles out the song in 15 minutes mm -hmm. while we're coming off back-to-back -back career highlights so there's a little bit of a letdown for me with this song i i like this song this is not one of my favorite songs this half of the album is a, is a completely different animal yeah i think to me the biggest fault of the second half of the album is that it happened to be lumped together with that first half like i think if we if this was all by itself we wouldn't be measuring it against what came before yeah i'm with you that this isn't a favorite or in the you know it didn't blow me away but a perfectly good johnny cash song definitely but i i do like it if a throwback to the june song which i can't remember you know mother nature's quite a lady uh but i can't remember the title of that song now uh, it does feel like it's definitely in that vein and i completely agree yeah uh so then we have our our next one feel the diamonds so we go from a field of stone to feel the diamonds what did you think about this song i, I like it it's field of stone mm -hmm. stone were really tough really compressed they created diamonds. Maybe I got the meaning wrong. I do like it. it. It does feel he's being a little bit more euphonious in terms of his voice here. And is there a backup singer here? Is there someone? Yeah, I think Cheryl Crow and somebody else sings backup on it. Okay. So there, there are female backup singers. I'm not crazy about the backup singers on this one. Uh, I think that's why the, I don't have a lot to say about it because again, this feels we're 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 coming off just side one, which is so yeah. great, and then these next two or three are just kind of they all kind of blend together for me a little bit. And they're shorter songs. They're not overstaying their welcome, which is something that you can say about almost all of Cash's back catalog. Right. He really was the master of the two and a half to three and a half minute song. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned his backup singer. One of the things about the American recording that I always found is that I never felt, for the most part, that the backup singer quite mashed up to the song. But I always felt like it was just a bunch of people who just wanted to work with him once. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just like just one time before he he died. Mm -hmm. It's like a, like a bunch of people who probably volunteered to like go in and lay a track with him. Field of Diamonds is again a perfectly good song. It is kind of a, a dip in mood 
Yeah. Okay. So track 10, Before My Time. I don't even really have any notes for this one. I, I like this one uh, and it really feels like old school, old school Johnny yeah. Cash, but with Rick Rubin producing it. I know this is an older song. Uh, I believe Johnny Cash wrote this one. It is probably one that he recorded in in the 60s right. at some point. And he did that quite a few times through through the course of these three, four albums uh, where he was re-recording some of his older hits uh, or, or not even hits. You know, It wasn't like he was redoing Ring of Fire. He's doing, I think, some deeper ones, I, probably because he just loved them and wanted there to be some some notice of them. I just don't have a lot to say about this one. Well, I always feel like this is him recalibrating, recentering. Going backward to the beginning, mm-hmm. it does feel like old cashier. It feels like he's recentering after jumping forward literally with these covers and kind of recentering back to who he is. Mm-hmm. So I, I like it. I, I like this song. I think it's a pretty little song. Yeah. But unfortunately, I don't have a lot more to say. Same here. And it does have a bit of that this is my turn I think because it's you know with the before you know oh I know people were writing these songs before me I'm writing them now with the idea being and then people will be writing them after sure. I'm just I'm, I'm a link in the chain and in that way thematically it does remind me very slightly of uh, Leonard Cohen's Tower of Song oh sure or yeah. you know something like that yeah. so and I think and I love Tower Song. So I, I, they're two completely, totally different songs. Right. But just that, there's something about that that I like, that he's always been one of those guys that knows who he is and where he is and, and really what he brings to the table. And, and you can see that with this song. Right on. Okay. And so that brings us now to, uh, let's say, the third of the fourth field songs or whatever, Country Trash, probably my least favorite song. I'm going to agree with you. This is where it goes into that area of like abstract hee-haw pocket I put him in. And yeah. this is the kind of thing that would reinforce that. You know, if I would have mm-hmm. heard it when I was younger, it would not have helped. Yeah. You know, and I'm just not interested in that kind of point of view and anything. I can't connect with it. It's not a bad song. No. It's just not a great song. And one of those that if this, I brought up the unearthed box set earlier. And these were, I think, two, because was, I think five discs. There was a greatest hits. There was a gospel disc. But then there were three discs of music of songs that didn't make the cut uh, for the regular albums. And there's some real gems in, in there. And there's a, especially with, what I'm assuming lines up to album four, whereas album four was good. If they would have chosen different tracks that were available, four would have been awesome. And I really feel like there's probably something on there that could have been in place of this one (laughs) and just even kicked an already great album up another notch. Before you jump, though, I want to run in a little tangent that I rarely get an opportunity to talk about Johnny Cash. You mentioned a gospel part of, of the unearthed books uh, set. Mm-hmm. One thing I like about him is that I'm not a religious person, certainly not Christian, haha, but the point is that when he sang about, for the most part, when he sang the more, more religious song, I really liked it. I could tolerate it from him, and I really liked it. Like a song like from, and I think it's from a, the previous American recording, Spiritual. Oh, yeah. Which is just beautiful, right? I had that one on repeat yeah. for months. Yeah, I'm with you. And and there's just something, again, at work, his iconic status, it's just that he's not a perfect person, and he's always told people what his flaws were. And mm-hmm. it's just something about when he came from that place and then portrayed uh, that point of view in his music, it's like, yeah, I, I think he gets it, and I, I appreciate it. I can identify with that point of view because he's not judging anybody. Yeah. I love him for that. 
that he allowed me to connect with that. And so I, I just wanted to state that because I, I think it's so important. Because I don't want to ignore that about him. No, and I would agree. And I can say, I think this is a good song to to mention this with, because when he's talking about what basically sounds like could have been, you know, he was born in Arkansas. He grew up picking cotton and working the fields. And this very well could have been his life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it ended up not because he had the drive and the talent to get out. I don't really... I, I get nothing from that. And it's the same thing, but with his more overtly religious songs. Now, I didn't really care for the the gospel album that he did. There's some okay songs in there. But when he sings from that perspective on a secular record, I used to joke that Johnny Cash is literally the only person I want to hear talk about Jesus. Yeah, I agree. Anybody else, just shut up. <laughs> I'll listen to Johnny Cash talk about it because he does. it comes from that, I think, an honest, visceral place. I don't know if he cares if I care or not. I'm singing my song. Right. He's not selling you anything. Uh, and then on to Mary of the Wild Moor, uh, which sounds to me like an old traditional song, but I think this, uh, I don't know who gets credit for writing the song here. Uh, it's listed as Dennis Turner. And so this one, I, I like this one. And this is another this is another story song. This tells like the complete story of uh, poor Mary of the Wild Moor, who basically freezes yeah. to death because her dad, doesn't hear her knocking on the door or something. And I, the only thing I'm not sure about with this song, because when I first listened to it, I assumed he was purposefully not listening, that he was ignoring her. He was mad at her and didn't realize what the conditions really were. And that was the problem. But then I don't think that's the case. I think he was just, he just didn't hear her. So I don't know <laughs> ultimately what the story is. I can relate yeah. to that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is a, a throwback mm-hmm. to me. This is something like a song he would have sang with uh, Bob Dylan. Yeah, definitely. Not early period, but not cheesy. So this is when he would have been on his show. Somebody would have brought him the song. He and Dylan would have killed it. And yeah, no, I right. I hadn't thought about that before, but spot on. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> but I don't have much more to say about it than that. You know? Yeah, same here. Uh, now, this brings us to track 13, I'm Leaving Now, which I thought for sure... Uh, whoever it is that sings backup had written this, but Johnny Cash wrote this one. Uh, Merle Haggard, I think, uh, sings backup on it. And I thought I thought for some reason Merle had written it. And then I saw today that Cash wrote it. This is the closest thing here that I think could have been on the previous album, even though it's the guitar's a little bit different because I don't think Petty's playing on this one. But this is a rocker, yeah, it, like and it's it. great. From that school of, you know, your cheating heart, but just amped up rock and roll. And I know I used to love you, baby, but guess what? I'm out of here or something. It's just great. <laughs> you know. It is. And it's perfect for where it is. Because this half of the album really needs this. Yeah. And uh, it's a, it is a fun on track yeah so it's kind of sweeping back up because mary the wild moor while not quite as you know it doesn't quite bring that level but it's up from the previous three which were a little more slow to mid tempo and then this one just kind of kicks in like that opening guitar is i almost yeah. wish this would have opened the second half i wonder if i would appreciate some of these songs more if they if they're just in slightly different order because just that bendy guitar at the beginning and it's just a good old country rumble i really like that one now that Brings us up to the uh, the final track, track 14, uh, a, an old traditional song called Wayfaring Stranger. What do you think about this one, Chris? I like this song very much. I do feel, though, that previous track, I'm Leaving Now, should have been the final track. I think it should have ended it with that. So maybe I would have flipped these around. This is, again, this is him going kind of back to old school, the more, and it is a traditional song, if I'm remembering right. It's a nice piece. You have these reminders of who he was, which I think is a really nice contrast to 
other tracks on the album. And for me, I think this is a great closer. I'm, I'm a sucker for the kind of slow closer. That's something that I see. I haven't quite come up with the, uh, the, the four types of closer yet. Uh, I, th- I think this is a great closer. I love this style. I love this song. So I love this song. I love this song so much. And again, with his vocal imperfections, there's a part where yeah. it's just his voice breaking a little bit, but it gets me every time. And it's like when he says, I'm, I'm going there to, see, to, to find my mother or see my mother. And there's just this moment. I'm like, all right, uh, you do that, John. I love this song so much that I bought another album because the band also covered this song. And so that's how I got into And hopefully I'll get somebody to talk to me about it. But uh, 16 Horsepower, Secrets, oh, Secret yeah. South. I bought that album because I saw the cover. I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. I look on the back and I see Wayfaring Stranger. I'm like, Huh? And I go and I listen to it, and it's like, oh, and just immediately bought it. Back with the vocal imperfections and just the sad, mournful, um, like accordion in this one. Just, right. I think, almost the perfect song. I think it's a great song, but it's interesting. I, I have the opposite thing. I, I think that he should have left with a kicker. Yeah, 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 sure. In studying these albums and listening, that there's, I do find that I do, I, I appreciate the sad closer for some reason. But there, there are albums that are great and go out with that. I'm going to kick you in the face one last time. When I was talking with Michelle Robbins about Faith No More's The Real Thing, uh, and right. there's a couple of tracks that I wonder if I would have liked them better if they would have been in a different order on the album. Mm-hmm. And so I even made a playlist on Spotify, uh, taking out one song, putting in a, an alternate track, and flipping two, and I like the album much better. Huh. Well, you know, it's funny. I don't mean to, to show my age here, but I, I wonder, though, when you talk to younger people if they i mean are people still digesting entire albums the way we did i mean like the the order and the track and all that still matter because it's just so ephemeral now because there's just no hard product to hold for the Mm -hmm. most part it's just so when someone releases an album like do people care so much about the order as I I don't know. That would be a fun thing to find out because because yeah. I find it for me it does matter. And of course you're so right. they're so calcified that you every once in a while I'll listen to an album on on shuffle and it just does me in. I don't know what's going on. But there are times I think I really wish the song was in a different spot and I would like it better or or what have you. The whole package is a decision, a choice, and so the reason why they chose certain songs in certain order, and and so I'm just wondering if. That is still being perceived. I'm just curious. Oh, same here. And for me, I'm also fascinated by that process of who ultimately, and I know it's probably different for every band, every album, who right, d- right. who finally, who makes that final decision? I'm curious if a, if a band's like, all right, I need a track three. Or if it's just, I know this album's going to start, or this is where I want to end. And I wonder if the production is slightly different. Like, is the way they lead into the song different because it is sure. track 14 or something i don't know and i'm and that's one of those i know it's probably different for everyone but i obsessed with that kind of thing like who made these decisions yeah I get was, were there arguments were there 10 different versions of that album in different orders you know that kind of thing i totally miss the package yeah. you know and the liner notes and the whole the whole experience sure. sitting down and all of that and it's just that now uh, obviously we experience music differently uh, so if I, for you and I talking about the order and stuff like that, it, to me, it feels kind of mm. quaint. And this is, to me, more of a reflection of us than the new generation. It's just it's interesting. Yeah. And I remember working at Vinyl Fever and one of the guys that I worked with was, was older. And he remembers when it was a big deal for a band to actually record an entire album. Because usually you just recorded singles and then somebody would put those singles together. But if you went in to actually record an album, that was pretty rare for a long time. And so now we're kind of back to the single thing is what it, way, so it comes down way. to 
Yeah. I'm not going to say which is better or worse. It's just this is what I'm used to. And I still I still I like to approach an album as a document. I still like to listen to it generally the way it's laid out, even when I'm listening to stuff now. Uh, But it's also nice that if there's a like with a a track on here, if I don't like it, then it doesn't make it to my electronic version. And the album is slightly better because it's buoyed for me. And so final thoughts for me, I, I think side one is pretty unassailable. I think that this is just kind of a bulletproof. However, if you were to switch Lucky Old Son and Wayfaring Stranger, if Wayfaring Stranger was on side one, I don't know that I would flip this record over. I mean, and I love I'm Leaving Out, so I'm kind of glad it is spaced out the way it is, so I do listen to those uh, on the second half, which I think are still quality songs, but they're just not punchy-in-the-gut kind of songs. So if that, if all the punchy-in-the-gut were in the first half, then somebody didn't do their job. <laughs> what about you? Any final thoughts, Chris? I mean, I remember having this album, and in a particular time in my life, I was doing a lot of traveling, particularly driving, and I just remember having this album in the car. Even just thinking about it, I'm re-experiencing driving through North Carolina, Pennsylvania, uh, Virginia. I mean, all these states, and this, with this persistent soundtrack all the time. It's a very special time in my life, and this is just a really special album for me. So I'm really happy to, to talk about this. Well, great. I'm glad that uh, somebody took it, and I'm glad it was you, because uh, it's always fun to talk about cash with you. Oh, yeah. That's been, uh, I fucking love this record. I've been Derek. This has been Christian. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening to I Fucking Love This Record, now available on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please subscribe, share, and comment. For this and other podcasts, please check out www.lovethisrecord.com, where you can also sign up for our monthly newsletter. If you would like to co-host an episode, write to me at lovethisrecord at gmail.com. Instagram and Twitter, we are lovethisrecord1. Facebook and Pinterest, we are Love This Record. Music at the top and bottom by The Ashes of Grissom. Special thanks to original patron Mark Evers for getting this podcast back on track. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Yeah.